to, um, first, I, I want to say thanks to everybody who came to our um, spiritual formation um, training day yesterday. It went, it went really well. We lost power for a little bit. Just That was a fun little wrench in the plan, and it just still went fine. Um, we had a great time. I, I don't know how many people, like 25, 30 people or something. Um, it was, we heard testimonies from Kayla and Tom and Nick and Kathy Stickler and several other people. Everybody did a great job. I got a lot out of it. I didn't do much talking. It was wonderful. Um, uh, I got to be mostly just a, a participant, which I um, really mu- very much appreciated. Um, and I'm grateful to Caroline Holden and Nikki Swan and Kelly McClellan and Harrison Northey for helping to lead this thing, plan this thing, execute it. Um, and as we run up to the Linton season, in a, in a month or month and a half or so, we're going to have a short run Sunday school class that focuses on a lot of these themes and spiritual disciplines that you could you know, apply in this, the season of the church that focuses on uh, repentance and spiritual growth and things like that. So we'll, we'll have more information on that for you as we get closer. Um, but what we did yesterday was a good setup for that. So thank you for coming. Um, before I read our passages for this week, for the second week of Advent, um, and then I'll pray. But when I pray, I do want to pray especially for uh, the, the wildlife um, camp, mini camp, weekend camp uh, up at Windy Gap this weekend. Uh, wildlife is the middle school ministry of Young Life, if you don't uh, know. And um, we have folks who we support in this church who are basically local missionaries in Young Life. And then we have a bunch of people involved and invested in wildlife in the middle school. And they had... Uh, First, I thought it was 47, and then I thought Amy said 41. So one of those two numbers, I'm pretty sure. Um, Kids who are coming from all different kinds of homes, uh, ending up there, many of whom do not know and love and trust Jesus. And we want to pray for them. They've been there all weekend. And um, if you're familiar with Young Life, there's a progression of of talks that they'll take kids through and obviously bring them to the cross. We're going to just pray that God would touch those kids, draw them to himself this weekend and beyond. And those kids are part of households who also um, need to hear and respond to the gospel. So this affects a great, significant chunk of our valley. And I want to pray for them specifically. Um, This second week of Advent will be... um, like last week in Isaiah, Matthew, and Romans. I'm going to read first from Isaiah 11, and you'll hear this passage again when we light the Advent candle. This is Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, 
and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be fruit of the knowledge of the Lord. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall be the nations require, and his resting place shall be glorious. Then Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. and His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going over to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Romans 15. Starting at verse 4. For what I was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such a testimony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. O God of our hope, 
We thank you that in you we have reason to carry on in hope, to endure in hope. And we pray this morning that that hope will call to the kids at camp, these 40-ish number of, of Owen Middle School students who are being called to the hope of the gospel, who are being told that their hopes do not rest entirely on their shoulders, but instead rest on yours. Father, I pray that you will speak clearly to their hearts, that the people who represent you would work with gentleness and faithfulness, that they might hear in their own words the gentle faithfulness of God. We pray, God, that you would win their hearts and that you would claim their families for yourself. We pray, Father, that you would heal the brokenhearted. And, Father, that you would deliver those who are imprisoned. Father, we pray that these kids would know that in you they have found a good and faithful father. That you have cared for them, you are caring for them, and you will care for them for all eternity. Father, we pray for much the same for us, that we would hear the hopeful word of the gospel this morning, that we would look to you, that we would turn to you in hope, and that we would see that in you all of our hopes are more than met, they are exceeded. There is no one like you, Lord God. Help us to see it again and to believe it all the more. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> if you heard in the, in the readings and, and noticed in our, our call to worship from Psalm 72, um, there's a heavy theme of, of judgment in these readings, which is exactly the kind of Christmas message we all hope for in the season of Advent. Um, but it's important to hear and to, to read and to understand uh, the, the good news of Jesus in the context of Israel's hopes. It is, uh, it is undermining to the fullness of the gospel to come and hear the story of Jesus and not hear it uh, as the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Um, a lot of what Jesus is speaking to is laden with those hopes and expectations that all of Israel is, is caring and groaning with. And so Jesus comes and he says and he does a lot of things that have these allusions and these pointings to the whole history of Israel. And for Israel, in a lot of ways, this announcement of the coming of the judgment of God is tied up with the coming of the son of David. And in Isaiah chapter 11, you hear that uh, prophetic looking forward. So... Um, in, in the previous portion of the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of imagery of, of God coming in and lopping boughs of, of trees off, just cutting the branches off in judgment. And so when you come to Isaiah chapter 11, what you have left is the stump. You have the stump of Jesse, and somehow out of the root of Jesse comes this branch, which is, you know, it's not how, that's not how it's supposed to work. But it's supposed to be this miraculous imagery that somehow out of, of barrenness and judgment, this new branch of life comes out. And this person, 
that is called the branch pops up in other prophets. Other prophets will speak of this person, the branch, that springs up from the stump, from the root of Jesse. And Isaiah talks about what this person will do and then what kind of world they will create. And what he says is, in the first part of the ten verses that we read, is that the, the, this person, the branch, the root of Jesse, uh, will come and he will judge rightly. And he won't judge based on the exterior. He won't judge based on what his eyes see or what his ears hear. He will judge in righteousness. So it's talking about this disconnect between uh, righteousness and the exterior. And the prophets are, are pretty keen to point this out to Israel, that they too much rely on what they see in front of them, what their eyes tell them. But the one who is appointed by God, he will do better than them. He will, he will judge by what is truly righteous. And what happens after he does this? He creates a world that is unbelievably, supernaturally peaceful. He gives this series of examples that are impossible. You know, the, the, the young cubs of a bear and, and cows should not, they shouldn't play together, right? You're, you shouldn't have your baby playing over the hole of a cobra or a toddler sticking his hand into the hole, an adder's hole. Oh, my son would be into that, but I would stop him, right? You shouldn't do that. But on the other side of the work of this person, the branch, the world will be so peaceful that a child could play with a cobra with no negative repercussions and a lion will graze on grass. Everything is different, in other words, supernaturally different because the king of Israel has come and judged rightly. And so there, there is, there's not a disconnect between judgment and peace. The prophet Isaiah is pointing forward and saying, because peace is coming, God must judge, the king of Israel must judge rightly. You can't have peace without judgment. And then when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he is wearing the garb of a prophet. He, he takes on these external markers that would, if Israel is paying attention, cause them to think of Elijah. And he is taking on this solitary, wilderness-oriented ministry, wearing camel hair and looking like a crazy person. And there is a reckoning between him and Elijah, which another prophet, Malachi, has said would happen. At the very end of the book of Malachi, he says, one day Elijah will come back and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, and they will repent or he'll, God will strike the land with a curse. Those, that's the end of the, book, the books of the Old Testament. That's the last of the prophets, that Elijah would come back one day. And here's John the Baptist bearing these markers of Elijah's ministry. And what is his message? Repent. Repent and be baptized. And baptism uh, was not something that he invented, but his version of it was pretty unique. There were some other people that had ritual purification rites and all these things, but he, uh, he uses this symbol as a, a demonstration of repentance, that you need to be washed and to be cleansed. And he also says to the Pharisees, to the religious people, the religiously powerful people, he says, one is coming after me. He does not say 
this is the end all be all of the message. What he says is, one is coming, and his baptism is different than mine. His baptism is not a symbol of cleanliness. It is an actual purification. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the symbol in the prophets previously is that fire actually purges. So John is is confessing. He's laying it all on the table and saying, this baptism that I am performing is not the same kind of baptism that he will be performing. And his message to them is very clear. You better watch out. You who claim to know God and represent him. He says, you need to bear fruit. It's really helpful um, juxtaposition that the lectionary makes for us. In one picture in Isaiah, there's this chopped down tree. And in Matthew chapter 3, we have John's same tree-oriented imagery. That if your tree is not fruitful, the, the real gardener will come and he will cut down these fruitless trees and throw them into the fire. He will come to judge. Now, we, we don't like this. We, we either don't like this at all, or we like it too much. And, and people have used either side of, those, of that one coin to varying effect in lots of churches. Because normally, typically, we take up this message of, of Jesus' judgment and we say, that's not very nice. That's not, Jesus is nice. This is not nice. So, you know, let's put that away. Create, you know, crazy old John over there in the camel here. We really went off the rails there, didn't he? And then uh, we, some of us church folk have taken up this message of judgment and said, love it. Burn them all. And they love to preach the message of God's burning judgment and use it to terrorize people. You, you're the one that's about to be cast in the fire. You better hear and respond. And yet it kind of sounds like I hope you don't because I kind of want God to burn you up. You know what I mean? You get that vibe from these people. But both of these errors in looking at the judgment of God mishear the message of this pronouncement of God's judgment because both people are saying this for other people will decide how I respond. I like those people, so I don't want to talk about God judging. Or I hate those people, so I want God to judge them. But when John the Baptist is announcing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God being at hand, this need for repentance, he is not talking about those other people. He's talking about you. He's talking about you because God comes to judge everyone. And somehow the news is both terrifying and far better than he could possibly imagine if you only talk about the judgment of God as being for those people over there. 
But both Isaiah and the rest of the prophets, John the Baptist, and ultimately Jesus himself will also take up this message of judgment. Relies upon a king who will judge rightly what is in the heart and flowing out of the heart. Because on the other side of that judgment is a world where evil is defeated. You can't have the peaceful, supernatural reconciliation of all things in all of creation without first the moment where the king banishes all evil from creation. In other words, you can't have the moment where the child is able to play over the hole of the cobra without first yourself having the cobras ripped out of your heart. You can't have a world where everything is made right and you are left somehow untouched by the judgment of God. Unless you are the root of Jesse, unless you are the branch, unless you are Israel's hope, you will also be judged. So if you are eager to take up this message of judgment, God is going to judge those people over there You better as eagerly say, God is going to to come and judge me as well. Which certainly the message of Scripture is, I hope, would temper the way that you talk about any kind of judgment that's coming to anybody else. The focus here is that, that the branch, the root of Jesse, Israel's hope, is a better judge and the kind of judge that the world needs. The, the way, the example that both the Psalms, the, the Psalm that we read and Isaiah talks about, specifically centers on the way that God will judge the poor and the needy. And it's a helpful, helpful category of people for us to see how incapable we are of making right judgment and also for hoping for judgment to come. So, a repeated theme in the prophets and in our readings today is that God will rightly judge the poor and the needy. And in Israel's day, certainly, the poor were being trampled on very often. It's a message in, especially the minor prophets, again and again, God has commanded you to take care of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. And the people of Israel are trampling on them and the scales of justice are not weighted justly. They are crushing the poor. And Isaiah tells of a day when that will not be the case. And it is important to hear that message and not to hear it and to allegorize it and say, well, you know, we're all poor in spirit. Okay, granted. But he's talking about poor people with no money. That's who he is talking about. People who have no power in society. People who are easy to look past. People who you and I drive by at the lights. See, this is where we get the message that we are not fit to judge. You and I come to stoplights and you see the message written on the cardboard, whatever. Two kids out of work, please help somehow. And if you are like me, you look at them and you judge. And you say, I'm not giving them money. They're probably going to buy alcohol. I've made that judgment entirely based on what I see with my own eyes. 
and I hear what my own ear, with my own ears, right? I don't know this person at all. And so I don't give them anything. Most of the time, 95, 98% of the time, that's my response. I don't give them anything because I say they're going to use it for something, this, that, or the other. Now, what is hard about that moment? Because a lot of times, people do take that money and go do bad things with it, right? That is true. That's not, that's not based on myth. Some people, plenty of people do that. But what's also possible is that exactly what they've written on the sign is true. They want to take care of their kids and they're homeless without resources and they just need somebody to give to them. And if I knew that for sure, I would probably reach in and give them whatever I had. But I make a judgment based on my own eyes and I drive on by. Because I am not a good judge. I'm not. I, I judge based on externals and on the exterior all the time. And very often, the people who suffer most in that judgment are those who are poor and needy and underfoot. They cannot afford to change the externals to appear good enough to be trustworthy. So we see that in our day-to-day -day interactions, depending on how often you drive to places where the homeless are. But we also see it in our justice system, right? If you come into contact with the justice system and you have more money, you can spend more money on smarter, more well-trained, less busy lawyers. And more than likely, you have a better shot of getting an outcome that you desire based on how much money you have. That's just true. Our justice system is built upon plea deals bartered by lawyers who have too much of a caseload. So judgment gets misweighted a lot of times, but not always, right? Because sometimes rich people who do bad things go to jail. And poor people do bad things too, and sometimes they go to jail. So what we see in a justice system, in our day-to-day -day life, I am not a good judge. You are not a good judge. And we don't even build good justice systems. And that is a massive problem. And a lot of times, we, we come to Scripture and we hear the message of the prophets and we, we don't attend to what they are saying because it makes us uncomfortable. It is, the, it is the custom and the habit of Western Christians to hear this repeated emphasis on God's care for the poor and the care for judgment and right judgment and righteous judgment. And we say either let's get to the part where the wolves and the lions are playing together or let's just spiritualize this. Let's not look at the way that society works around us. Let's move to the part where Jesus is laying in a manger. That's more fun. Put on the lights. Turn on the music. Christmas is awesome. But we of all people who have power, money, comfort compared to the rest of the world should hear the prophets warning us 
and our cultural location speaking to us as individuals. God comes to judge. And he comes to judge everyone. There is no class of people, rich or poor, white or black, that he will not judge. And what John the Baptist says to the religious people is, he will judge you. And there better be fruit in conformity with the tree, or he will cut the tree down. The good news of that is that when the king comes to judge, he will make a world without injustice. The good news of that is that on the other side of judgment, evil is crushed. Evil has no place. There is no more improperly weighted scales of justice. There is no more questioning when you're driving by who is worthy of trust and who is not. Because on the other side of the coming of the root of of Jesse, the rod of Israel, the hope of Israel, is a world where everything is made right. And so the people who dwell in it will be able to live freely, comfortably, joyously. Because everything does not rest on our shoulders to determine what is right and what is wrong. We can trust in that world that there is a good king who is watching carefully and who has done everything to make the world just and right. That is a hopeful vision. And what the scriptures will tell us is that you and I are invited to live in that world. You and I are invited to live in the world that God will make. Make no mistake, that world does not fully exist yet. It is only in down payment form. It is only here in uh, in advance as a down payment. It is not here in full. But as Paul writes in Romans 15, we are meant to endure and to live hopefully because that world will surely come. And the nature of that world is that all people are invited. Paul uses this series of promises and invitations from Scripture. You know, as he he moves through those lists of of promises of the day when the Gentiles will come and worship God. He's pulling from Deuteronomy. He's pulling from 2 Samuel and from Psalms and the prophets. What he's saying is all of Scripture is telling us that one day all people will be able to find their hopes in the God of Israel. One day the God of Israel will be lifted up and, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the truthfulness, he says, of Israel and the mercy of God to all people. So the door gets flung open in Jesus so that everybody can hear the invitation and the good news that one day God will make all of this right. One day God will find all of the secret evil sin of my life and he will rip it out by the root. One day he will look in our society, in our systems, in the collective sins that we all contribute to, and he will rip it, he will reach in and rip it out by the root. 
He will take all of this chaff, as John the Baptist talks about, and he will scoop it up and he will throw it in the fire and the world will finally be purged. The symbol will find the fulfillment of what it symbolizes one day. And so this hope that is sure and final and concrete and for everyone that does not exclude anyone is centered on the person and work of Jesus. So in this Advent season, we are looking back to the first coming of Jesus and we are looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And we are an Advent people. We are not just in Advent for four weeks. We are a people who are constantly in the in-between moment. We are constantly a people who are holding on to what God has already done in the first coming of Jesus, and we are grasping forward for the second coming of Jesus. So we do preach judgment. We preach that God comes to judge. But first we acknowledge God comes to judge me. God comes to lay bare the motivations and intentions of my heart. He comes to judge me. God comes to judge the whole world. And we confess that all on our own, we would fail in that judgment as surely as anyone else. We we do not announce that God will come and judge to terrorize other people. We come and say, we stand before the King of Israel, the hope of Israel, and we too, left on our own two feet, would have no hope. Because Isaiah in chapter 11, he says that the King will come to judge in righteousness. Not based on what is seen on the outside or heard with our ears, but in righteousness. And I know me, and I fail that standard. But that is not the end of the proclamation of the judgment of God. The great determiner for the people of God is not our own contribution to the weighing up in the scales, but is instead what we see in the work of Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. What we confess is that God is a God who judges. God is a God who judges me. And in the work of Jesus, he has pronounced his judgment, that it is finished that he has found me acceptable because he's found Jesus to be acceptable. That the king has thrown himself in the way of his own judgment for my sake. And still we confess that my life will be evaluated. My life is still called to bear its own kind of fruit. But my life, it is promised, is found and hidden in Jesus. And he does not just promise to me that my life is experienced the deferment of judgment. He also tells all of his people that now your life, your tree is replanted in his. 
And what he invites you and I to is to what Jesus says is to abide in him. To have a grafting in from our own branch of righteousness into the branch of Israel. What Jesus says is like it's a vineyard. He is the vine. We are the branches. And we get to draw our life from him. God will come to judge the whole world because he cannot, he will not abide the presence of Israel that, of, of sin that, that mars and disfigures everything that he's done. He will come and he will deliver Israel. He will come and deliver the whole world. God cannot and will not abide the presence of evil. He will come and he will judge everything about that whole scenario where I drive past the poor and judge the outside. He'll judge the reasons that person is poor. He'll judge that person. He'll judge me. He'll judge my judgment. He will render powerless everything that has entrapped and ensnared both that person and me. He will tear down the systems that trample underfoot those who are easy to trample. He will bring a reckoning to me and to the way that I contribute to a culture and a system that tramples on those who can't, I cannot see and therefore do not care about. He will trample upon all the judgments of the world that is measured by its own righteousness. And he will say, I will judge according to my righteousness. And I will judge rightly every single person. He will find the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have borne his name and rejected him in his heart. And he will not allow their ministry, their hypocrisy, their falsehood to stand. He will judge his church who has played around with all kinds of evil and advanced it and hidden it and not exposed it as it's called to do. He will judge everything in the world. And it is only under the outstretched arms of the crucified God that we will find the outpouring of His mercy. It will not be based upon how much He judges those people I don't like. And it will not be based upon my own construction of a measure of, ju- of judgment that it makes everybody safe. It is only based upon how do we come to Jesus. Paul says it is Jesus who is lifted up as the one who fulfills the truthfulness of God and demonstrates the mercy of God. And it is only Jesus that reckons me to how God will come and do His work. So the question this Advent is, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Is Christmas about another turn of the cycle of consumerism? Or is Jesus this morning the person who you run to for the mercy of God and who you run from full of the life of God? Is Jesus the person who grafts you into his life and invites you to abide in him and suddenly your life is the life of the branch himself, bringing fruit, bringing a kind of life into the world that will survive and be on the other side of judgment? Or are you living for a world that will pass away and be thrown away with that old way of doing things? Are you and I living in accord with the other side of judgment or are we living with this side of judgment? So this Advent season, Jesus is presented to you as a reckoning. Do you hear the word of His judgment and react with fear 
react with joy, not sure how to feel. The coming of God to his world is meant to be heard as good news, as a word of joy. So if the idea of the king of Israel coming to judge fills you with terror, fills you with discomfort, something is wrong. This morning, something is wrong. Because your heart is meant to leap with joy. Jesus does all that is necessary to make permanent your purification. Jesus demonstrates with what he says and what he does and ultimately what happens to him that his people can take comfort from him forever. So if you are discomforted this morning by a word of judgment, come to Jesus. Maybe you're discomforted because you know that you have played the Pharisee in your life. That you have taken delight in pronouncing judgment on someone else. For this as well, Jesus Christ can be your comfort that even the Pharisees like me, he can save. Those who have lived a life bent on pretending that they are the ones constantly on God's side and knowing that within there is barren desolation. Even a Pharisee like me, he would come to save. God brings life and peace, and he will crush the the powers of darkness and evil and sin and death. We do not live in the day when we see it fully, but we see the down payment of his mercy. This Advent season, will you lay the full weight of the darkness that is within you and the darkness that is without and entrust it to the hands of the good judging king, the son of righteousness, who will bring peace now and forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we confess that we, we're people who have done poorly with judgment, who've wanted to, to stay away from it because we're afraid of it or we, we like to heap it on other people because those people are the people that are the bad ones. We, we've shied away from the, the message, the finger pointed at us, saying that for us too, you would judge. And we confess to you that we, we have found reasons to give ourselves false comfort, and we have also found reasons to trust the good, to distrust the good news and instead listen to the accusations of another. Again, taking everything and making it about us. But you are our great hope. You will judge the world rightly. You will take up the cause of those who we pass by. You will render the right judgment. Help us to, in you, see the pronouncement of a good judgment over, our, over your people. 
I pray, God, that anyone who's here who is, whether, whether they're Christian or not, whether they have found comfort in something other than you, I pray, God, that you would disabuse them of that self-delusion, that you would free them from the, the need to construct systems and hold them up in place so that they could feel better about themselves, but instead you would say, come receive the good and final word that it is finished, it is done, the word of mercy has been spoken over them now and forever in the way of the cross. And Father, we pray that you would come. We pray that you would come and you would purify the world. We come and pray that you would bring the world where this supernatural peace is laid out for us, is wrapped around us, is the world that we live in. God, we pray that your feet would be on the earth, that the king would be on his throne in power over the earth. We pray that you would make us hungry for it, to long for it, to look for it, that we might look for it with joy based on the good and final pronouncement that we hear at the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself singular in our vision this Advent season. Let us not be distracted by what is shiny and what is nice and warm, but as instead, God, we pray that you would stir up our hunger and that we would see you as the light of the world shining in the darkness. Consume the vision of our lives, Lord God, as we eagerly wait for your coming. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.